piety, uh, but, but there was a massive abandonment in the 19th century uh, away from Orthodox doctrine. Doctrinal Christianity itself um, became um, something that should maybe be discarded if we want to keep Christianity respectable for modern scientific man. There, there's the rise of Darwinism, uh, there's uh, higher critical views of scripture, there's the philosophical challenges we've already mentioned. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. This is Matthew Barrett, your host. We usually talk about theology on the Credo Podcast, and that's why I always say uh, doctrine matters, but uh, maybe we should uh, amend that and say this is the Credo Podcast where doctrine and history matters, because today uh, we are going to be going back in history to talk about old Princeton. Uh, Many of, uh, well, many in the church today, and I assume many uh, evangelicals today may or may not even be familiar with Old Princeton, which is really to our detriment, given the major contribution that uh, individuals like B.B. Warfield and Charles Hodge and so many others have made to the very doctrines that we hold so dear. I'm actually joined uh, by three friends uh, and Old Princetonian scholars, I think I can say that much. Uh, I have uh, here to my left, Gary Stewart, who is Assistant Professor of History at Colorado Christian University. Uh, Gary has written a a fascinating book and one that I would recommend to Christians uh, and pastors alike. He's written a book called Princeton Seminary, Its Leaders, Lives, and Works. It's published by PNR, very readable, very accessible, and very applicable uh, not just to uh, theology itself, but to the Christian life as a whole. Uh, next to Gary is Paul Helseth, who is a professor of Christian thought at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. And uh, Paul is, uh, well, he's written in, an, in a number of books, but uh, the book that comes immediately to mind is his book, Right Reason and the Princeton Mind, an unorthodox proposal. I think the subtitle, Paul, I think the subtitle says it all, but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, This book is a provocative book uh, in which Paul is pushing back against uh, some of the caricatures or the popular popular caricatures that that, that many have just uh, accepted without uh, criticism, uh, both at uh, the popular level in the church, but then also in academia as well. And uh, to his left, I also have uh, Michael Plato, who uh, is a professor in uh, history and Christian thought at uh, Colorado Christian University as well. And I, I think I can also say uh, philosophy, given that uh, he teaches classes uh, on, on the history of philosophy. Thank you, all three of you, for joining me here at ETS in November. Uh, it's very cold. Uh, it snowed the last two days, 
but uh, we've, we, we actually, uh, though I, I don't know that I should say this, we're actually huddled together in a hotel room because we got kicked out of, uh, of another room. And uh, here we are, uh, this makeshift uh, podcast studio and uh, held up uh, by, by uh, some books and uh, a microphone. And uh, I think Gary and Paul are even sitting on a bed. Uh, so they get uh, extra points, I suppose. For for do, I don't, has anyone ever done a podcast sitting on a bed? I don't know. Um, thank you guys, though. Seriously, thank you for joining me. Uh, let's let's not assume too much. I think for many of our readers, our listeners, that is, uh, they may not have ever read anything by the old Princetonians. Maybe they've never picked up. Uh, Hodge's systematic theology, uh, or maybe they never read any of the articles that B.B. Uh, Warfield read on inspiration, and there's many other works I can mention. Um, and on top of that, uh, these are individuals that lived uh, a long time ago, uh, that uh, in another era in which they taught at, uh, at a seminary that looked very different than uh, how Princeton looks today. Um, maybe a couple of you could just jump in here and just tell us what what, what does it mean when someone refers to to old Princeton, and uh, who are some of the figureheads of of, of old Princeton, and uh, what did their time period look like? Well, uh, old Princeton is uh, a phrase that is used to refer to Princeton Theological Seminary from the time of its founding in eighteen twelve to the time of its reorganization in 1929. Uh, The seminary was founded by uh, some of the theological descendants of John Witherspoon. Uh, The the three principal players in the founding of the seminary were uh, Ashbel Green, Archibald Alexander, and Samuel Miller. Um, The seminary was founded in part because of a lack of Presbyterian ministers. Uh, So um, the Presbyterian Church um, decided to found a seminary, a single seminary in the United States that would train pastors for the ministry, precisely because they thought that the College of New Jersey, uh, the uh, original iteration or version of of, uh, Princeton University, was uh, falling down on the job, so to speak. It was not training enough pastors. And so the seminary was founded really for a very, very practical reason. Um, because of dissatisfaction with the, with the work that the college was doing and because of the need in the, uh, in the church, the Presbyterian church in particular. Um, uh, some of the leading uh, thinkers associated with Old Princeton are uh, Archibald Alexander and Samuel Miller, the first two professors at the seminary, but other luminaries, I guess we could say, would be Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, as you mentioned, J. Gresham Machen, and lots of children of Archibald Alexander and Charles Hodge as well. So, um, yeah, I think that's how I would jump into it. Yeah, and they were a school that was committed to the confessional orthodoxy of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And yet they were also uh, uniquely uh, influenced by the American Great Awakening experience. 
And so they, they tended to blend uh, both the emphasis on Orthodox um, Protestant Reformed theology and also an emphasis on genuine religious experience. And, uh, and, and so they really became known as a school that blended those things. And their impact was felt not only on pres- uh, Presbyterians, but also uh, many Protestants um, trained for the ministry there, whether they were Baptists or Lutheran. Uh, it really was a theological uh, center for, for uh, Orthodox confessional training for the ministry for, for many years. I think uh, one other thing about um, Old Prince that probably had the most immediate impact for a lot of listeners um, was the fact that um, in many ways they, they identified as um, um, Orthodox and by our standards conservative, and they were in many ways on the front lines of dealing with all of the new challenges that were coming to Christianity in the late 18th, 19th, and early 20th century. B.B. Uh, Warfield, I think a lot of, um, uh, would be one that uh, most people would think of, but um, Joseph Addison, um, uh, Hodge as well, uh, sorry, Joseph Addison, Alexander, um, as well as Charles Hodge, were the first to really encounter a lot of the liberal German scholarship, that, um, especially coming out of Europe, things Christians are still dealing with today. Um, I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind. They were the first really uh, to face um, head-on a lot of the intellectual challenges of the time that, like I said, I think we're really still dealing with. And that's, uh, that's what creates a real value, I think, for today. And maybe one thing to add to that is that their posture with respect to how they were encountering these things was a very, very aggressive posture, not a defensive posture that we sometimes encounter in contemporary evangelicalism. But they were confident that because this is God's world, all truth ultimately points to the God who created and is sustaining the, the world that we live in. And so they engaged uh, in a kind of a, 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 a very, very aggressive um, yet faithful way. And so I think that that is also uh, something that uh, we contemporary evangelicals can learn from. Aggressive and intellectual. Yes. I mean, they, they learned the language as they studied head on. Charles Hodge, one of the first to go to actually Germany itself to, to learn what was going on. So I think models in a way, not just simply yes. being aggressive, but thoughtfully yes. engaged. Yes. Now you've mentioned Germany and uh, perhaps we should uh, address the, the, the polemical context uh, in, in which they are uh, writing. Now, Paul, you've mentioned, I think this is an important qualification, that uh, first and foremost, their contribution is, is, a, is a positive contribution. Uh, for a variety of reasons, we tend to think of them in uh, having a certain apologetic stance, uh, which there's truth to that, but, but uh, you've stressed that uh, first and foremost, uh, they're going about theology, going about, uh, many of them were churchmen, uh, trying to to help the church understand God's word and and interpret the world around them through that lens, but uh, and and at the same time there are there were certain um, certain attacks, uh, certain threats to Orthodox Christianity. You've mentioned Hodge going to Germany. Maybe you could flesh this out a little bit. Why was it? Why why did someone like Hodge uh, think it was so necessary to go to Germany specifically to to receive training? Um, and, uh, and, and maybe not just Hodge, but, uh, what are some of the modern, uh, the modern challenges that they're up against in their own context? Well, I guess if I would jump in, I would say perhaps the, um, 
one of the primary challenges that the Princetonians were responding to was the uh, legacy of Immanuel Kant and the tendency to distinguish religious truth from scientific truth and to assume that real knowledge has to do with science defined in modern terms and that religion has to do with merely subjective uh, experience. Uh, and they were uh, very opposed to that, in part because it emptied the Christian religion of, of true truth, of, of real objective content. And so um, I, I guess I would say off the, uh, from the start that, that Hodge and others, uh, even Machen at the beginning of the 20th century goes to Germany to study under liberal German theologians, um, they recognize the, um, the gravity of what Germans and theological ge uh, liberals generally were, were up to. They, they recognized the, the challenge that subjectivizing the faith posed to uh, the church. And so they went to Germany in part to um, learn the language, to uh, understand the theology that they were trying to um, counter in many respects. When we talk about uh, this, this theology they're trying to, to counter, I mean, it comes in so many shapes and forms, does not. I mean, we, you think, for example, of Warfield and uh, the variety of ways uh, Warfield is trying to defend, say, the inspiration of Scripture, uh, in, in which he's writing articles. Uh, some articles are on the specifics uh, down to, to the original languages of, of the Old and New Testaments. Uh, other articles are given a theological articulation, a theological defense even, of uh, verbal plenary inspiration. Um, and uh, that gives us a flavor for uh, someone like Warfield was gifted enough to be able to to to, to do that on so many fronts. Um, <clears throat> but if we not just Warfield, if we think, for example, of uh, uh, more on the tail end of things, uh, Machen, Jake Russian Machen, and uh, his his well known book Christianity and Liberalism in uh, nineteen twenty three, I think it was, uh, in which. Uh, Machen is uh, now in the 20th century, the, the first quarter of the 20th, 20th century, and he is uh, writing what will be a classic book uh, to defend uh, Christianity over against Protestant liberalism. And Machen is arguing there uh, that uh, Protestant liberalism isn't, isn't just another shade or type of Christianity, that this is another, another religion altogether. Um, so maybe speak to some of uh, these challenges and, and others, uh, others as well. I haven't even mentioned a number of others. Uh, how, how is it that uh, these, these Princetonians, how is it that they find themselves in this situation in which they're, they're, they're having to respond to, to some of the philosophical assumptions from someone like Kant, but then uh, with modern theology, it's, it's, gotten to, to such a point that uh, the very doctrines of the faith, uh, doctrines that were held for, for years and centuries uh, in, say, the Westminster Confession or the, the, the Catechism, uh, how, how, how does the church get to this point in which 
doctrines like the deity of Christ, the resurrection, the inspiration of Scripture, and so much more are being not just questioned, but even in some cases rejected wholesale. I think in, in their own day, uh, the 19th century witnessed a m- massive defection away from orthodox theology um, uh, under people who still claim to be Christians, and yet they, uh, well, they, they kept the name Christian and maybe even Christian practices, church attendance and spiritual uh, worship, um, um, piety, uh, but, but there was a massive abandonment in the 19th century uh, away from orthodox Doctrine, doctrinal Christianity itself um, became um, something that should maybe be discarded if we want to keep Christianity respectable for modern scientific man. There's the rise of Darwinism. uh, There's uh, higher critical views of Scripture. There's the philosophical challenges we've already mentioned. But the Princetonians were living in an era of massive uh, defection, and, um, and it's just something that they, they face head on. I do want to say that the, the Princeton theologians, today when, when we face theological or biblical or philosophical challenges, we tend to approach those things from a very siloed and isolated um, um, discipline. Um, but the Princeton theologians um, were, were so um, uh, holistically studied, we could say, in different fields. So Archibald Alexander for many years was a pastor, and then he becomes uh, a teacher of theology. Charles Hodge was a biblical scholar. In the first half of his career, he was studying technical biblical studies, and then he becomes a systematic theologian. So they were able to face their challenges with uh, drawing from um, a rich study that crossed disciplinary boundaries and uh, it, it really is um, uh, unique as they drew from, from their uh, various backgrounds and integrated them all into a coherent uh, body of thought. A lot of that was certainly <clears throat> excuse me, bolstered um, by a structure that universities and seminaries had, which really disappeared by the beginning of the 20th century when you suddenly see the rise, um, particularly of German-influenced universe, uh, research universities, which created specialization. Specialization really started after, really, the Civil War in America. Um, And, I mean, Princeton obviously carried on um, beyond that, but you're right, there was this synthesis. Archibald Alexander, for example, um, as well as uh, John Witherspoon at uh, at, uh, New Jersey College, uh, Princeton University, uh, would teach a a course called uh, Moral Philosophy, which was a capstone course um, uh, that all students were to take, and it was... And he said, well, what, what, what do you teach in moral philosophy? Well, it sounds like ethics. Well, it was ethics, but it was also psychology. It was also what we call anthropology. It was politics. It was um, manners um, and etiquette. Um, it, it, was like, it, was, it, was, it was, I mean, it, it sounds like kind of a crazy hodgepodge, but it was, uh, like Gary said, there was a much more synthetic kind of a thinking going on um, that Princeton had, um, whether, you know, how long could that sort of thing carry on into the 20th century? But um, certainly that model um, uh, was quickly abandoned um, in other places in, um, in universities, certainly by the end of the 19th century. And so when you lose that, then you lose a lot of that cross-disciplinary thinking. Yeah, so for Archibald Alexander, how many pastors um, you know, read philosophy deeply mm-hmm. and have their devotions out of the Hebrew Psalter? 
like he did frequently. I mean, just yeah. amazing cross-disciplinary study and reflection and integration of the various fields, which makes their how they then respond to various challenges so enriching because they're drawing from such a wide variety of disciplines. Yeah. Now, Paul, you've written a book called Right Reason and the Princeton Mind, and uh, the subtitle of that book, uh, an unorthodox proposal, uh, starts to, to get at the meaning, or, or at least the thesis that you're putting forward. Uh, the, maybe we could call it the, the orthodox consensus uh, or, or, or majority position, um, if, if that's accurate enough. Uh, is is that these uh, old Princetonians, or maybe old Princeton as a whole, uh, really were um, going against uh, Reformed orthodoxy, traditional Reformed theology, uh, in thinking that in thinking that uh, human reason is somehow uh, autonomous, uh, maybe even. Uh, Reason is not even affected by uh, the consequences of the fall, and uh, it, it, this type of reading of of the old Princetonians uh, is one that that could be taken so far. Maybe some have taken it this far uh, in recent days as to to even say, well, these old Princetonians they were they were just Christian rationalists. Uh, they they were so indebted to the Enlightenment that they they couldn't escape. Uh, they couldn't escape this type of mindset. Um, your book pushes against that. Uh, sometimes very popular reading uh, and, and of of the old Princetonians. Why? <clears throat> well, uh, because reading the old Princetonians leads me to believe that they simply weren't rationalists. Um, and rationalism, I understand, is a very kind of um, a word that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, but I think that the way that it's used in the context of this discussion, the discussion that surrounds how to understand the relationship between the Enlightenment, Enlightenment philosophy, and the Princeton theologians, the word rationalism is used to describe an approach to knowing, uh, an approach to epistemology that is grounded in an implicit and at times explicit rejection of some foundational reformed convictions that have a direct bearing on how you think about knowing. Um, so, for example, uh, reformed Christians um, are persuaded that the fall had a significant impact on our ability to know and to see clearly. They also insist that regeneration has a significant impact on our ability to know and see clearly. Well, it's precisely those kinds of things that the common assessment of the old Princetonians contends the old Princetonians themselves um, downplayed the significance of those ideas. Uh, and so I'm pushing back on that by trying to make the case that, um, well, in fact, the Princeton theologians recognized that the fall impacts our ability to know. They recognized that the work of the Spirit enables people to see more or less clearly, not to ever see perfectly clearly, but to see more or less clearly. Um, and, and so the accusation 
the claim that the old Princetonians were rationalists, I think when understood in that very theological context, makes um, that that's the, that's the way the word is used in that context. Yeah, I think the the argument was made that the Princeton theologians were rationalists. It was really made way before there was um, um, a real clear understanding of the Reformed Orthodox tradition. So, so Hodge's comments and, and his prolegomena about the nature of theology as a science. Um, th this is before uh, Turretin was translated and before Bavinck was translated, made available into English. And so many of the Reformed uh, scholastics, the work of Richard Muller, I think uh, the, the, the claim that Princeton is somehow rationalized, uh, the Princeton theologians were rationalized, uh, really was a claim that was made before the Reformed Orthodox positions and statements were well known or well understood. I think more recent scholarship is showing that Princeton theologians are quite in the mainstream of the Reformed Orthodox tradition of the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, yes. and, and maybe before Michael jumps in, the, the, uh, along with this is the idea that the Princetonians conceived of theology as a science, and they're un they, they conceived of it as a, in such a way that if we simply do our empirical analysis, our inductive analysis of the teaching of Scripture, if we do it well enough, if we do it um, good enough, we will be able to discern with almost absolute precision what the system of theology that is in the Bible is. Um, and, and, and that, I think, is a kind of caricatured understanding of how they thought about theological science. I mean, Warfield is well known for his emphasis on uh, progressive orthodoxy. Um, uh, the idea that, sure, we can have true knowledge of what Scripture teaches about certain things, but our understanding of what Scripture teaches can get better and better and better. It can progress it can progress and get better let's take a break and hear from one of our sponsors midwestern seminary's doctor of ministry degree program is your next step in training for local ministry the doctor of ministry program at midwestern seminary is designed to equip and train leaders with a commitment to the local church with multiple emphases available including counseling church revitalization expository preaching leadership and missions among others your program provides the equipping you need in practical theology for direct church work and ministry leadership. And because all of our doctoral programs are modular, you don't have to leave your current ministry to pursue your degree. For more information, visit mbts.edu today. That's mbts.edu. One uh, quotation that uh, is often brought up in these types of conversations, uh, and, and Paul, maybe you've uh, if, I, if I remember right, I think you've even engaged this quotation yourself. It comes from uh, Charles Hodge's Systematic Theology, um, which, which are volumes that uh, Christians, uh, pastors and students, and, and definitely scholars should be familiar with. Uh, but there's this one statement in uh, Volume 1, uh, right toward the beginning, where uh, Hodge is, is talking about theological method, I think. And he says, the Bible is to the theologian what nature is to the man of science. 
It is his storehouse of facts and his method of ascertaining what the Bible teaches is the same as, as that which the natural philosopher adopts to ascertain what nature teaches. And uh, many have, have read this statement in Hodge and, and have concluded, well, uh, yeah, he may have been uh, raised and nurtured in uh, the theology of, of, say, the Westminster Confession, but uh, clearly here his theological method has, has strayed from it, uh, as, if, as if the Bible is uh, just to be treated like some type of scientific uh, textbook. Um, how, how do you respond to that type of, of accusation, or maybe that type of interpretation of Hodge? Uh, is that a right or a wrong reading of Hodge? Um, it, how does Hodge uh, think of theological method, and, and maybe even the Bible specifically? Well, I think it. I think it's. It's a. In a sense, it's a right interpretation of Hodge, but in another sense, it's a very poor interpretation of Hodge, as far as I can tell. Um, Hodge was thoroughly persuaded, as all Orthodox theologians were then, and I think are now persuaded, that the the essence of Christianity is found in a reality that is objective to the believer or the believing community. So theology for Hodge and the old Princetonians centers on trying to understand not just how God is working in the world that we live in, but how God has made himself known in the world that we live in. And this is largely, at least initially, outside of us in a source of authority that is objective to us. That, I think, is the larger context that informs how to think about his emphasis on uh, the Bible being the storehouse of facts. So the Bible is the is the principal place that we find out about who God is and what He has done to save human beings. This is this is not found first and foremost in our religious experience, divorced from the Bible. No, it's found in the Bible, and that impinges on our experience rather than our experience kind of forming and shaping the Bible to, to be what we want it to be in some sense. So uh, I think that's the first thing that I would want to say in response to that, to the, to the tendency to point to that text as evidence that Hodge really was just a, an Enlightenment thinker who had embraced a, a kind of uh, a Enlightenment understanding of what science is. So towards the end of that section that you're referring to, Matthew, is the Hodge makes the claim that he says something like this, and this is not an exact quote, but it's it's close. The question is not what is true to a man's intellect or understanding. The question is what is what is true to the man's heart. Do you, do you guys remember that that phrase? It's towards the end of that uh, discussion of the inductive method. So, uh, in my understanding, that that. He is, he is acknowledging in that very discussion that the state of the person's heart, regenerate or unregenerate, able to see, not able to see, um, the able to dis- ability to discern or not discern, that is really the key in understanding uh, the inductive method for Hodge. That, that, that's what I would say. And, and his statements are intended to uh, just completely run counter against what Schleiermacher is doing and how Schleiermacher sees 
the doing of theology, which is heavily subjectivized. I think also in the Prolegomena, Hodge talks about the need for illumination. Mm. It's very clear. So that quote is often pulled out of the historical context and even its own, you know, the literary context of the, the Prolegomena. Um, Hodge believes that illumination is absolutely necessary for the true uh, understanding of theology. Um, that's, that's clear both in his published systematic and in his unpublished lecture notes, where in the notes he begins with really the need for illumination. So. Yeah, when I, I'm really glad that you mentioned Schleiermacher, Gary, because um, I think that gives some context to, to exactly what Paul is saying here. Uh, when you look at Schleiermacher's theology, uh, it's it's not uh, an objective revelation from God that that is grounding uh, the the task of theology. Rather, it's a it's a turn to man's uh, religious experience, uh, or or more in the the language of Schleiermacher that that feel that 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 feeling of absolute dependence, um, which sounds very spiritual, of course. Uh, but it subtly shifts uh, where the, the very grounding of epistemology, the, the very foundation on which uh, we know what we know about God. I, I mean, I think the, the idea that Hodge is doing something peculiar or unusual here is just uh, seems to me to be kind of fanciful. It, what he's doing, as far as I can tell and as far as others can tell, is just simply demonstrating that he's an orthodox theologian. So at the beginning uh, of his book, uh, The Making of American Liberal Theology, Gary Dorian says this, this is a quote, before the modern period, all Christian theologies were constructed within a house of authority. All pre-modern Christian theologies made claims to authority-based orthodoxy. Even the mystical and mythopoetic theologies produced by pre-modern Christians took for granted the view of Scripture as an infallible revelation and the view of theology as an explication of propositional revelation. And so, well, why is Dorian mentioning that? Because he's writing a book on theological liberalism. So what is theological liberalism? Here's what Dorian says. Fundamentally, it is the idea of a genuine Christianity not based on external authority. Liberal theology seeks to reinterpret the symbols of Christianity in a way that creates a progressive religious alternative to atheistic rationalism on the one hand and to theologies based on external authority on the other. So Hodge again is thoroughly persuaded, as were the, all the old Princetonians, that Christianity is based on external authority. Mm -hmm. Now, there are subjective factors that play a role in our ability to lay hold of or appropriate that external authority. But, but that's the emphasis on objective right there. It's not this idea that all people have the ability to see objectively. No. No, they would say, we don't see objectively. You, you either see truthfully or you see in a biased way. Two points I just want to jump here in on this. Um, responding to this, yeah, there seems to be, again, this kind of dichotomy that develops between the old Princetonians and the Schleiermachian experiential quality. And yet, first of all, the, the Princetonians had a profound sense of 
religious experience. Um, if, you're, if, you're, if we're going to get uh, jump ahead to the point of what would you recommend reading from the Princetonians, I would say one of the very first things is Archibald Alexander's thoughts on religious experience, where he talks about the role of um, experience, the role of the senses, the role of subjectivity uh, in Christian faith. Um, it's actually written in a way, I think, that's very understandable to modern audiences, maybe so, more so than other figures, like even like a Jonathan Edwards, where we turn to uh, for ideas of Christian experience. I think this is an important thing, and, we, and, and, and this becomes a part of what Princeton tries to do in terms of creating a balance between reason and piety. Piety was very much, um, it, I mean, it wasn't just a school for our high standards of academe. Uh, academe. Uh, students had a very, um, uh, a, a life, I mean, it's kind of fascinating when you look at it. I, I almost want to compare, I, I wonder if anybody does a comparison of how life is lived in a modern seminary with how they lived at Princeton and how much prayer, devotion, um, uh, communal discussion, um, uh, the, you know, you think of Charles Hodge giving his Sunday night talks uh, to groups of students and there was a powerful sense of, of, of experience that was in, in Princeton. The other thing to keep in mind, I think, as well, so that's sort of a first point. The other one, and I think, um, uh, I think Paul and I were sort of you know, discussing this a little bit more, um, this whole notion that suddenly um, Princeton was rationalistic, which is kind of weird because they were reading, uh, to begin with, Scottish philosophers who were empiricists. Uh, not, they weren't rationalists. Uh, uh, so, I mean... They take them in an odd direction there, but what was going? Um, nobody was talking about. It wasn't even in the air that this is where they were going. It suddenly emerges in the 1950s, 1960s. Uh, Sidney Alstrom and then later Mark Knoll. And I mean, I don't want to suddenly turn this into another dis discussion, but I would suspect um, there were other, perhaps, agendas going on. Um, and I think this is one of the things Paul's work is certainly um, I, I uh, pointing to this, it's like, well, uh, you know, the, wait a minute, maybe they don't fit. Well, when we have to start asking the questions, well, when did these theories start to emerge? What were they trying to accomplish? And I think a lot of the people who started reevaluating Princeton were looking at other, uh, a very different America with a very different kind of Christianity, uh, the fundamentalism of the mid nineteenth, uh, the mid twentieth century, um, and I mean, I, I'm just jumping ahead a little bit. I think they were looking for a culprit. Um, that, I mean, I don't know what Paul's thought on this was, um, but maybe you can, you or Gary can add to it, but I think this is one of the things is that, um, they weren't looking at Princeton in the whole reading it whole. They were, there, there was a very, um, uh, what am I, what am I saying? It's a very, uh, you know, deliberate, you know, um, a search for what they wanted in the texts. Um, and they found it and they were able to draw a pedigree. Um, so that's just some, I mean, just two things I, I just wanted to keep in mind. Um, one, you know, these, these ideas of Princeton, the challenges, challenges to Princeton on these grounds didn't occur at their time, really didn't occur uh, till about a century after the high watermark of Princeton. Well, I think, Michael, you're right that the, the notion that they were rationalists certainly is connected to the assumption that the Princetonians thought that they could discern what scripture was teaching with such absolute precision and absolute certainty that they kind of um, 
had mastered theology, so to speak. Um, and, and so that certainly goes along with, I think, your suspicion that, you know, there's, there, there's this association with Old Princeton with a certain kind of very rigid, very narrow, um, unyielding, uncharitable kinds of fundamentalism. One of the uh, works, or it's actually not a long work, uh, it's more of an article uh, that I recommend to people all the time. Uh, I have my students read it. Um, usually at the beginning of, of a semester is uh, Benjamin Warfield's uh, The Religious Life of Theological Students, uh, in which uh, he, if, if you read Warfield, he dispels so many of, of the, the type of uh, caricatures that that you all have been discussing, um, and Michael, you have m- mentioned a recommendation as well. I'd be interested in uh, Gary and Paul. Uh, what are some other uh, other books or or articles that uh, you would say? Hey, if you if you want to understand the mindset of Old Princeton, the context, or maybe even the theology of some of these figures, uh, what works would you point them to? I think I'd agree with, with Michael that Archibald Alexander's Thoughts on Religious Experience is, um, is, is the book to start with, and it is a wonderful book for all Christians who, who face issues of conversion, temptation, uh, struggling with sin. How do you know if you're really saved? What does conversion look like? What are the evidences of the work of the Spirit? It's a not, not a technical book, and it shows the, the, the heartbeat for for true gospel spirituality that epitomized the, the Princeton seminarians as a whole. So I think that one and probably um, Hodge's systematic theology, I think is not as uh, read as much as it should be. And it's really a shame. I think so many people think that, um, well, if you want real deep reform theology and you want real deep spirituality, um, well, you got to read Jonathan Edwards and there's really no one else. And I think it's a shame today that, that there are not more people who are waving the flag for Old Princeton as books that are spiritually and theologically helpful. And they will help the church, they will help pastors, and they will help ordinary Christians. Uh, just those two works alone are immensely helpful. Um, Hodges Systematic, maybe A.A. Maybe a. Hodges, um, uh, I think it's called Bi- Biblical Doctrines or... Uh, a. a. Hodges out- outlines. Outline, outlines outlines of theology. That's it. Outlines of theology. Hodges outlines of theology was used by Spurgeon as a textbook for a minister's training in England. Um, so, so probably those three: A. A. Hodges outlines of theology, Charles Hodges systematic, and Archibald Alexander's uh, thoughts on religious experience. Wonderful books that should be read by by ordinary Christians and certainly pastors, theologians. If I could just add one, uh, aside from just recommendations, I would have to say, I don't know if you guys would agree, uh, Warfield's essays on the inspiration of Scripture and J. Gresham Machen's book on the virgin birth, I don't think any book has surpassed um, them and those two topics. If you really want, if you have questions about the virgin birth, I mean, that book, nobody has written anything since that's better on the virgin birth. And then I said, uh, Warfield on inspiration of Scripture. (laughs) 
Yeah. And one we're missing, Bradley, is Christianity and liberalism. Yes, yeah. Amazing classic. Yeah, I have my undergraduate students read that, and it is profoundly life-changing for many of them to see clearly the categories and outlines of doctrinal Christianity. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful work. Yes, Christianity and liberalism, I have my students read as well, uh, because Machen so clearly defines not just Christianity, but the gospel itself. And uh, so to our listeners, if, if you uh, are, are trying to understand what Christianity is all about, or, or maybe you you are a Christian, but uh, you're, you're trying to understand what makes Christian doctrine distinct, uh, pick up a copy of Machen's Christianity and Liberalism. It's a short book, actually, but a powerful one in which Machen uh, adds such clarity to who Jesus Christ is, what salvation accomplished, and uh, what the what the Bible is. Um, uh, one last question uh, before we sign off here. If you could, uh, as you look at old Princeton, and of course we're talking about uh, individuals who lived uh, long ago, uh, but their contribution continues today. Uh, I, I think it's accurate to say there, there's been somewhat of a revival of interest uh, in old, old Princeton. And uh, Gary, it sounds like from your comments, uh, prayer that there would be more revival in, in old Princeton still. Um, why, is, why, why is it that we're starting to see some, some renewed interest? And uh, how, how might you encourage our listeners to, uh, to, to continue to, to investigate and explore these, uh, these theologians? I think um, there's interest because people want deep piety, spirituality, and they want also deep theology, head and heart together. Uh, and held together as a, as a model. People need models for ministry in the Christian life. Uh, people need heroes. And, um, and old Princeton can, can provide those things. In some ways, they're, they're more accessible than the Puritans. They're closer to our situation in America, 19th century. So they're more accessible than the Puritans. They're, um, they're not as wordy as the Puritans, by the way. Yeah. Um, they're... Um, they're not as philosophically taxing or difficult as Jonathan Edwards, as great as he is. There's, um, that's the thing with book recommendations. Sometimes people get a book recommendation and, you know, you pick up Edwards and this is tough going. This is really hard. Freedom of the will. And this is very difficult. You don't get that with the Princetons. They were pastors as well. So they can communicate to ordinary people in language that's able to be understood um, I think they're the, 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 the first place I would want to point people to who want the combination of deep theology and deep spiritual experience. I, I, I would add just, I think, and, and this is, I think, unfortunate, um, one reason that perhaps the, that the old Princetonians are being retrieved uh, today by many evangelicals is because evangelicalism itself is in many respects very much like the theological liberalism that the Princetonians were addressing at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. I understand that's a very, very controversial thing to say, um, and no doubt many would want to push back on that, but um, uh, the idea that Christianity is based upon external authority, that God has made himself known in such a way that we can have true knowledge of him, that there is a 
source of salvation that um, we can lay hold of and be sure of and confident in, um, all of those things seem to be somewhat revolutionary in an age that uh, has uh, overemphasized, many of us would say, um, subjectivity. And so I would argue that that's one reason why perhaps we're seeing um, renewed attention and interest in the orphans. I think, yeah, just putting both of you, you know, what you just said together, they're kind of a bridge in a way. I mean, they're, they're steeped in, um, in the Reformed tradition. You know, I mean, when we look at Archibald Alexander, I mean, just who he was reading of the Reformed uh, tradition beforehand. A lot of people that are very difficult from uh, modernists to read, but also they were, they were really the start of the age we live in, uh, the age of liberalism, the age of science, um, the age of um, industrial uh, society. Um, Gary's done work on J.W. Alexander and talking about, uh, it, it, I mean, he's a, the son of Archibald Alexander, which dealt with industrial and urban society. Um, all of the questions that, um, that are just part and parcel of the world we live in, they're the first deep, thoughtful Christians in, in our culture to deal with that. I think that's just a value on its own. Uh, they're, they're, they're kind of attached to the past, but they're also focused on the future in a way that I think is really, um, you know, where Christians need to be thinking today. How do we look to the past for good resources and meet the challenges? And I think that is what, where they're, they can be a real model for people, for Christians today. We've been talking to Gary Stewart and Paul Helseth and Michael Plato, and we've been discussing uh, Old Princeton, some of the, the great figures that made up this school of thought. So I would encourage our listeners, if you've never read anything by uh, any, any Old Princetonian, uh, don't, uh, don't wait. Uh, pl- You've, you've heard so many of these good book recommendations. I think that you'll find yourself pleasantly surprised and perhaps even uh, a bit addicted to, uh, as, as I think these gentlemen have been, uh, a bit addicted in a good way to, uh, to, to not just studying these individuals, but, but then also seeing the value they have for the contemporary age that we find ourselves in and for your own personal walk with Christ. Uh, gentlemen, thank you for joining me on the Credo Podcast. Thank you. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.